Well, I just got off the plane Grabbed my bag and got a cap Now I'm looking at the mountains Know it's a beautiful sight to see They're standing there looking back at me How I wanted to go to the mountains If there's a God by God, he lives in the mountains Way up high where the peaks all reach the sky Where the evergreens are always green And the seasons never stay the same for long In the mountains
Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it is me. And we are listening to the song In the Mountains by my good friend, Jeff Fight, who's sitting a good social distance away from me in his studio in Bealesville, Maryland. It's Torchlight Productions Recording Studio, and I have recorded here, not nearly enough, for sure. I am horrible at that and scheduling it, but I think this is a song he wrote a long time ago, so we're going to ask him right now. But first, Jeff, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Todd. You're most welcome. So tell me a little bit as to when that song was written. Well, I wrote that song when I was about uh, 18 years old, actually. It's one of the first songs I ever wrote. So about 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat here. That's all right. We have many of them. In- <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was about 18 when I wrote that song. And uh, it, it was at a time when I was I was going through a lot of questioning and, you know, wondering what's it all about. You know, those kinds of questions that, that come out of people when they're about <laughs> in their teenage years. And, uh, and I put that together. And I remember writing it. Uh, I was sitting out on my front lawn where I lived when I was a kid and uh, put the song together, and I think it was written probably within a day. Now, was that the first song you ever wrote? <laughs> Actually, the first song I ever wrote, I think I was about 12 years old, and it was called My Little Wild Eagle, and it was during the John Denver phase, and that's kind of what got me into uh, singer-songwriter guitar-playing uh, kind of stuff, is I really, really enjoyed John Denver, and I wrote that song, My Little Wild Eagle, and actually sent it in to John Denver. Did you really? I did, and I never heard anything back. <laughs> it had to go through too many layers. And too many layers, can... and I'm sure he, if he did see it, he probably just laughed at it because it really wasn't all that good, but it was my start. Not knowing him personally, but knowing of him, I would be willing to bet you, because he was a nice guy, mm-hmm. that if it had gotten to him, he would have had someone write you a note or he would have written one himself and i never got anything so. <laughs> you only Not made it to the first layer of my friend which was i got it to the mailbox it probably got lost in the mail who knows it could be now that brings up a question where did you grow up i grew up in uh between gaithersburg and rockville maryland a little town called mill creek town ah. if you, you know mill creek town? no i don't i didn't know it existed well i went to magruder high school so it's okay. in that general area um redland junior high it's now redland middle school i think but, yeah, that's where I grew up. Now, what was it like in that area at that time? Now it's shopping centers and car dealerships and condos. and It was small-town suburbia. Um, there was not a whole lot going on. It was, uh, it was I, I'm not sure I would call it rural, but the neighborhood that I moved into, I was either the first or second, our house was the first or second one built on the block. So you got to watch urbanization move its way from the I Beltway did. up. I did, yeah. And I didn't like it. <laughs> but I watched it. Um, and I noticed that, you know, after I'd moved away and took a job in Idaho, uh, I, and when I came back, it had changed dramatically. I mean, it was not the same area anymore. Well, we're going to get to Idaho in a moment. But was your family musical? My mother is very musical. She plays piano. Um, She's classically trained. I, I don't know if she's played anything recently, but but her whole family was very musical. My aunts, both musical. Um, my cousin, uh, Danny, incredibly musical. I mean, he's he's a concert pianist oh, he is. level. Yeah, got perfect pitch and everything. I mean, he's, he's an amazing pianist. 
Um, so that's where I get it. My father's side of the family, I don't think there's anybody on that side of the family that has um, anything musical going on. So, uh, so it, it comes from my mother's side. But my father loved music. I was going to say the most important part is this. That's right. And he yeah. did that pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so now, did your mom get you interested in playing piano at some point? She did. Um, that's, that's a story. Uh, she got me into playing piano when I was in like second or third grade, and I hated it. I hated it. I begged her to let me get out of it. She, I said, please, Mom, I, I can't stand this. I don't want to be in it. I'm not interested, and I want to do something else. And to this day... I mean, she she let me get out of it after I think I went through two years of it. And she finally said, all right, if you don't want to do this, then you don't want to do it. And I got out of it. And to this day, I'm kicking myself because yeah. I really wish the piano was an instrument that I could play and play well. Can you tinkle on it a little bit? Yes, I understand. I understand piano because I understand chord theory and mm -hmm. being a songwriter you use piano a lot of times to, to put your chords together. And so I do understand the piano. What I don't have is what you develop, for instance, as guitar players, we're both guitar players, we have that muscle memory. Right. And I don't have that with piano. Um, I, I, I just kind of, I, I can figure, I can get the chords, but if I had to play a song, I don't you sight can't, read. You can't get there automatically. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I am amazed by pe people who are really good at piano. Mm-hmm but also the ones who can sing and play at the same time. That's amazing. Yeah. Elton John. Mm -hmm. um, Billy Joel. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my good friend, Mike Conway, studio producer, That's I guess we'll talk about later. We're going to talk about him later. <laughs> he, he's amazing Absolutely. at that, too. So from the time you, you did two years of piano, when did guitar enter into Jeff Fight's life? Interestingly enough, it didn't enter into my life in really full-blown enter into my life until I was about 12 years old. Um, and it was, it might have been a little older than that, it was when the John Denver uh, thing started kicking in. Um, I remembered I'd, I'd really loved John Denver's music, and I actually went to see a concert at the Capitol Center, which I think it's called something different now, and that did it for me. That just totally did it for me. Um, my mother had bought me a guitar from Sears, mm -hmm. and when I was probably about, I don't know, eight, nine years old, something like that. Um, and it sat right next to the fireplace. Ooh. I know, but I, and I never wanted to have anything that she bought it. And she said, here, learn to play this. I wasn't interested. I had no interest in, I had no interest in, in learning to play a musical instrument. I just didn't. And then, like I said, when the John Denver phase kicked in, that was it for me. And I started picking up guitar. I, I took some lessons. Like in junior high school, I took some lessons, and I took off from there. And uh, and then by the you know throughout the entire John Denver thing, I just I was in fact I would think it was in what was it fifth sixth grade? No, I was in I was in seventh or eighth grade, and we had a talent show, and I performed Rocky Mountain High. Did you in front of an entire in the entire school at a talent contest? And I remember that the stage was in the very middle of the audit of the uh, gymnasium where they held this thing and there were people all around me and there's there's me i'm just sitting there <laughs> 13 12 13 years old whatever i was and I, I and they had they put up a big screen and they flashed slides of mountains and things like that you know the rocky mountains and and all that which is why i love the mountains um so how did the performance go 
It went really well. Did it? Yeah, that was my first big performance, and I couldn't. I remember sitting up there, and I couldn't believe I was sitting there playing this song with all these people around me. I was just, I, it was like dreamlike, you know. <laughs> so the performance bug bit you big time. It did, um, and and I, but but I didn't really do much with performing right directly after that. It took me a while before I started getting into actual performing. I was. It wasn't until I was more into my 20s um, after college and everything that I started getting into going around to coffee houses and things like that and, and doing that. So guitar for you was not a way to meet girls. It was a way to be John Denver it in was, a way. It was, <clears throat> it was it, yeah, I didn't look at it as a way to meet girls. Um, that didn't really happen very, very much for me when I was a kid. Um, you know, I wasn't one of those football players or, you know, <laughs> guys like that who seemed to get all the cheerleaders. I, I wasn't in that crowd. Um, but people, when I brought a guitar somewhere and I played, they generally liked sitting and listening. And when I played some of the music that I'd written, they really liked that, that I was, that I was doing that, that I was introducing my own music. Well, it's unusual. <clears throat> Most guitar players or singer-songwriters who write original music don't necessarily begin writing at a young age. They generally start years later. What was it that made you, did you write poetry or, or anything, or were you a, a, a good writer in an English class and things like that? What got you into it? I Well, I, I am a good writer. I will say that. I'm, in, I'm not going to pat myself on the back, but I do write well. <laughs> I do write well. And, um, and I found that I was able to put words together with 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 chords and with music and that kind of came naturally to me and at the time um i didn't have writer's block which a lot of times now i i do um i'm actually writing a song right now but it's it's taking me a while to get to get it moving um but you know you're just so fresh with ideas when you're young Mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of things going on inside of you that you feel like you want to express and it made it easy for me and you don't have as many distractions either. When you're young. Yeah. Correct. And now life kind of gets in the way. You know, there's a lot of things that go on when we're adults that that kind of, you know, take us away from our creative side. And, and I've found that to be true. Yeah, the, it's amazing how many, I'll use the Beatles as an example, how many songs they wrote before the age of 24 or 25. Right. And yet they didn't, well, they did have a, a lot of life experience with the whole Germany thing and what, whatever, more so than the average person does. But still, it's amazing how productive some songwriters can be at such a young age without that lifespan of experience. It is, yeah, it really is. And, and you know, that's really a good point, that how can, how, how can young people write so eloquently mm-hmm. and about such in-depth topics when they really haven't experienced life yet. And here I am sitting here at, at 59, 59 years old, and I'm thinking, I had to have a whole lot more to write about. You know, I need one you of know, those then, buttons that cuts it out. You yeah. know, like on radio, when yeah. someone swears, it cuts it out. So that when someone gives their age, and I don't believe oh. they're that age, I can cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I am 59, trust me. <laughs> oh, goodness. So... The first song was the one about it. Oh, no, it wasn't the first song, the one about the eagle. 
that was, yeah, the first song I ever wrote, which I never did anything with, and I really didn't play it that much. I, I just wrote it because I was in that John Denver mm-hmm. phase, and I, I thought, wow, I love Eagles. I love the whole. He he did an album, as you recall, yes. called uh, Airy, mm-hmm. and um, about an eagle, which is an eagle's nest, I mm-hmm. guess, right? And I remember his fascination with eagles and of course there i was 12 years old and i loved eagles and the whole thing just made sense to me and so i wrote this song don't ask me to tell you what the lyrics are because i i'd have to go look for them you still Uh, have them somewhere i have them somewhere as a matter of fact a couple about a month ago i came across them when i was going through some of my old music and i saw it and i said i I told cherish i said look cherish is my fiance by the Mm -hmm. way and i i said look at this i said this is the first song i ever wrote i can't believe i still have it and she said, wow, I can't believe you. And I said, yeah, I just, I can't believe I still have it. And I looked at it and it was written like I was 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it would be interesting if you could find, say, six or eight penned songs written mm-hmm. when you were a youth, a youth, that you could make an album or an EP of those songs. I would have to, yeah. And I, the thing is, I never, reco- I never recorded Wild, my little Wild Eagle. I never recorded that one, so I'd have to learn it again, and it wouldn't just, take long, and just record it now. Yeah. But what um, fun that would be. Yeah, it would. It would be a lot of work though, trying to come up with the melody and trying to remember everything. And I actually have made a lot of recordings over the years. Um, most of them were 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 done before I became you know, a, a certified recording engineer. So it, it the, the, you know, they were a little lacking in, in, in quality, but, um, but I've been able to take some of those and kind of fix them up a little. And I'm trying to put together a, a composite of a lot of the good stuff that I had done years ago. Uh, for instance, there's a song I wrote called convince me, uh, which I'd recorded and it was recorded all okay. I did it in like the, uh, the late nineties and um it's it really is it's one of my one of my better songs um natalie and mike really like it they're the group that i'm I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later but uh but they want to record it as well um so there are some songs that i am thinking of pulling together and and doing something more with well now that you've mentioned both natalie and mike let's bring them up into the conversation because they're part of your trio yes um they're part of the, the group that we have called common ground and uh, we haven't gotten out there and done a whole lot yet. We perform at the showcase every year, um, but uh, we, we're, we're all so busy with life that it's hard for us to get together and, mm-hmm. and work. But I think we have a really nice sound. You do. Your harmonies are wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank and you, because I've only seen you as a group at the annual showcase. Right. But very smooth. Yeah, we, uh, when, when we're able to get together and practice, we, uh, we really do pull off a nice sound. Yeah. And I'm hoping we'll get to do a little bit more of that in the future. It's just that everybody's busy. Now, how did you get to know them so that they became part of your musical being? Mike is actually um, a past client of mine from the studio. Um, I met Mike back in around 2009. Um, another client of mine had referred him to me. Um, after I'd done an album for him, Mike came to me with uh, a whole host of songs that he wanted to record. He recorded here. We put out the album, and we continued to do more work. He came in and did some session work for other players um, between 2009 and, and now. And we kept in contact, and we were good friends. And I always admired Mike's ear for music. He had a really 
good producers, a good solid producer's ear. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Mike to join join me in the studio. And I thought it'd be really good to have a production team instead of just a recording studio with an engineer. We now have a, a production team. And <clears throat> this other client of mine who'd introduced Mike to me had brought in Natalie um, at one point because he wanted her to record on one of his uh, songs, one of the songs that he had written, and to do some backing tracks. And she came in, and I heard her sing while she was here before she was laying down any tracks. And I said, we're setting up the booth right now. We're, we're, we're recording you right now. And I looked at her. I said, you're ready, right? She said, you mean right now? Mm-hmm. We're going to do that right now? I said, yeah, why not? which is kind of interesting in recording studios. You know as well as I do that things happen very quickly in a studio. Yeah. If, if the producer or the artist or whoever hears something they like, you want to capture it as quick, quickly as you can. Just get it, you know, and don't even second guess it. Just get it down. And so we put her in the booth and laid down an amazing backing track for this guy's song. And Mike happened to be in the studio one day because they were recording. She was going to be laying down um, vocals on a song that he and this other gentleman, um, Ron Kemp had record, had worked on together and written and Mike met Natalie and Natalie's from Canada. So Natalie was singing this song in French (laughs) and I'll never forget it. Mike came into the control room and looked at me and he goes, wow, (laughs) she's singing in French. I said, well, she's Canadian. You know, a lot of Canadians know French and English. So, and he goes, and he was just totally smitten with her at that point. And that was, that was the end of that. (laughs) And so they got together and then the three of us started doing work together in the studio. And we actually called Natalie in to do some consulting uh, when we brought vocalists in. She's a vocal coach. Very talented. That's what she does work-wise or? No, no, she's, but she's, she is classically trained vocalist. Um, And... But she, I, I'm not sure what she does. I, I don't know the industry that she's in. Uh, but, but she comes in from time to time and lays down tracks. For instance, she is, she is considered a session vocalist here at the studio. Mm-hmm. And if we ever need somebody to come in and lay down a vocal on a song that somebody else has written, but they don't have the wherewithal to, to actually do the vocal themselves, we'll call on Natalie if we need a female vocalist. And she'll come in, she'll learn the song, you know, within 15 minutes, she's got it nailed, and we're ready to track. Well, speaking of background vocals, in the song, In the Mountains, Mm -hmm. towards the end of the song, there's that group background, not necessarily singing words, it's more the sound, and it just sounds huge. (laughs) Is that the three of you? That's the three of us, yeah. It's studio magic. Oh, it just, (laughs) you know, because I listened to the song before, but when I'm uploading it into my little system here, I've got the headphones on mm-hmm. and I have nothing else to do but listen. There's no things I'm, I'm not putting the laundry in, things like that. <laughs> and I'm listening all of a sudden that you come in at that point and I'm thinking, whoa. It's, um, it's kind of like, you remember Phil Spector used to yes. do the wall of sound. Yes. Okay, well, that's kind of what that is. Um, but it's actually just the three of us and we're not, we're actually not double tracking or, or triple tracking or anything like that. It's These are just three vocals that are in there. Now, see, I thought because of the sound of that, you had overdubbed two and three and four times. 
No, not that I recall on that track. We did that a while ago, and I'm trying to remember exactly what we did, but I don't recall. I don't recall doing that. Um, it sounds good. Whatever you did. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but it then you know then you do a lot of things in in post production that that enhance it and you know make it sound like it's a lot more there than what really was. But that's that's the the magic of the studio. Well, you mentioned that. Early on, you did record some things, but very unprofessionally. How did you get from that point to where you are now? What was the the progress? Okay. Um, well, as I'd said before, I'd moved out to Idaho. Um, after yeah, and I tell me about that, too, Okay, as to why you moved out there. Okay. Well, I had, I had graduated from uh, University of Maryland, and I got my mechanical engineering degree, and I moved out to the nuclear engineering uh, laboratory out there. Um, and while I was there, I was really developing my songwriting. I mean, I was in my early to mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And so I was really developing my songwriting and taking it further. And I decided, look, I've got to have something other than a little cassette tape recorder to record what I'm doing. So I got myself a, um, I forgot what it was now. It was a Yamaha four-track recorder, tape recorder. And, you know, back in the 80s, those, that was like all the rage, right? Um, now you can't even find them anymore. <laughs> and I recorded, I recorded all of the songs that I thought were worthy of recording and started trying to market them, get them out to Nashville and so forth. And nothing ever came of that. Um, and I found out later that I was sending out unsolicited, <laughs> sending in unsolicited music that most, most producers, most, uh, you know, m- most... Um, uh, production companies in, in Nashville are not interested in, in, in hearing any of that. They want to know that, hey, yeah, we're looking for this, and go ahead and send it to us. We'll be looking for it, you know, in the mail. So I did that, and I, like I said, I had a Yamaha four-track recorder, and and then when I moved back here to the, to the Maryland area after I'd been out there for five years, uh, went to work for the Department of Energy, and I continued to write, and I continued to work with that four-track recorder. And then I realized that that was kind of becoming outdated and I wanted something a little bit better. And I said, it's time to move into digital recording. So I got myself a Roland VS1680. So now I had 16 tracks possible. And um, I can't remember, I think you could record eight at a time, but you could mix to 16. And I worked with that for a while. And, uh, and then I met um, uh, the, the guy that was, became my partner, uh, Bruce, Geyer, who has, has since passed away, and, uh, and we, we recorded for a while and, and performed and everything, and he, um, and, and we did a lot on that 1680. We did a lot of recording on that 1680, actually put out an album and everything off the 1680, and after he had passed, I went back to just recording, to just to performing solo, and I was kind of getting burned out on that. I mean, after you're a duo, it's tough to get back into the mindset of being a solo act again. Well, and it doesn't sound the same. It doesn't sound the same. I missed the harmonies. I mean, we were we were good friends, you know, and, and we had a, a really nice blend in harmonies, and that was gone. And mm-hmm. he was, not to mention, he was an incredible guitar player. Um, so I made the decision that, you know what, now I'm going to do, now I'm going to, now I'm going to do something more with my education. I'm going to actually go and become a certified recording engineer. So I enrolled at Omega down in Rockville 
and I took their 13-month course. I worked by day, and I went to school at 13 night. 13 months? 13 months, yes. It wow. was 13 months. It started in October, finished in November of the following year, and got my certifications for uh, for audio engineering and then also for, uh, for Pro Tools. So I became a Pro Tools certified operator, and I was able to bring that into the studio and, uh, and, and build this the studio that we're sitting in now to build that up to where it is now um, and took it very, very seriously at that point. And so is, you know where I am now with it. <laughs> is that difficult, though, going in? I mean, at least you had a little bit of recording experience. Is that difficult to transition from that Roland to getting into the big studio and learning everything? Um, it is. It, it's it's. It's a little, even though I got a lot of experience on the Roland, there were a lot of holes that I had not covered because I wasn't exposed to the right things in recording. I mean, I did have a lot of really great experience, but once I got enrolled at Omega and, and I started to learn all of these other techniques and, and you know, understand how um, large format consoles worked and, and effects and, and everything and put it all together, it made good sense. Um, and then I transitioned it into Pro Tools, of course. And, and the idea behind Pro Tools is that you really shouldn't start with a program like Pro Tools unless you are actually really, really good with audio engine. You have to know the basics. The prerequisite to being able to, to use Pro Tools properly and efficiently and effectively is to know what you're doing as an audio engineer first and understand signal flow, um, you know, things like that. So yes, it, it is a transition, but now, you know, that I've been doing this for years in Pro Tools, it's, I can't think of doing it any other way. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pro Tools, and, and I'm not saying that Pro Tools is the only thing out there. It's not. I mean, there's Logic Pro. Um, there used to be, a, it was a digital performer. I can't remember the, the name of, I don't even know if they're around anymore, but Cubase. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of them out there that are, that are exceptional. Um, the, you know, there's Reaper. Um, I think that Doug uses Reaper in his studio, Chabro. Um, and I just happened to, to move into Pro Tools because that's what they were teaching at the time. And I learned it. Now, were those classes group classes or one-on-one? -on -one? <laughs> they were group classes. And what was funny about it when I first enrolled is I was the oldest guy there. Were you really? Yeah, because I was in my mid-40s when I went there. I mean, I was like 44 years old when I started, and every all the other people in there, they were kids. They were like in their early 20s, right out of high school, you know, still trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And I, I looked around the room when I first went in there, in that first class, and I said, oh, boy. I said, I don't know if I fit into this. I don't know if I feel right about this. And I remember talking to one of the instructors about it, and he said, you don't need to worry about that. He goes, you're here because you want to be. He says, it's not about age. If this is something you want to do, then do it. And I did. I really wanted to learn the ins and outs of all of this. And I actually became pretty good friends with some of the guys and, and the ladies in that class, too. Um, learned a lot. Enjoyed, being, enjoyed working with them and, and doing recording sessions with them. It was just a lot of fun. It was a, it was a good move for me um, at that time. Now, was you say you stayed in contact with a few of them? I did, yeah. I haven't since. I mean, it's that was probably within the first couple of years after. Sure. Yeah. Now, 
in recollection, how many of them actually moved forward with that education and how many just at the end moved on to something else? Do you have a feel for that? I don't have a feel for it. Um, I know one of the guys that I went to school with, he was um, he was actually one of the founding members of a group called Pig Destroyer. I don't know if you've Pig ever Destroyer. heard. Pig Destroyer. Yeah, it's never it, heard that it's, one. It's one of it's it's one of those um, I'm not sure what the, the classification is, but it's that hardcore rock where they scream into Oh the, yes, yeah. Yeah. And that group was considered to be at the top of their game and I think they still are and they they do world tours and everything. And I don't even remember the guy's name, but he and I worked on, on labs together. I mean, we did, we did a lot of things together in, in the studio. Very, very talented young guy. He was, I had about 10 years on him. But um, he, was, he wanted to learn how to be a producer because he wanted to be able to produce and master the albums for Pig Destroyer. <laughs> I remember sitting in, in class one time, and a couple of the kids in the class who obviously knew who he was came up to him before the class and asked him for his autograph. <laughs> and the teacher, of course, the instructor knew who he was too, and the instructor said, go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> sign away. <laughs> so when you go to a school like Omega, I thought it was just nuts and bolts, but they also had classes in producing, production. Well, it's it's no, it's not classes in production. It's it's audio engineering techniques. And so when I say production, you're actually learning. You're learning about all the production t techniques. You know, being a recording engineer and knowing how to do things in post production. You know, using reverb, delay, what have you. But they don't have a specific. At least at the time, they didn't have a specific course in being a producer like Mike is. Right. Being a producer. Um, is something that I don't know that you can really, really teach that. You either have a feel for it. Mike has a feel for it. Mm -hmm. okay? He's got that ear. He knows how to listen to something. And that's what a producer does. They know how to listen to, to a mix and say, let's try this. And then it's the engineer's job to say, okay, I'll make that happen for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I produce as well. Mike and I kind of work together on that. So, you know, are all engineers producers? No, but... But a lot of engineers are producers. Are all producers engineers? Not necessarily. There are producers who really don't know too much about the ins and outs and the mechanics of, of the audio engineering. But there are. You can mix and match that. And with Mike, Mike is a producer. And he understands enough about the studio and, and the mechanics of how things work because he, he does a lot of DJing. He's done a lot of live sound before. He understands enough that he is also an audio engineer. Okay. But the roles that we play here, um, I'm the engineer, he's the producer, and mm -hmm. that's the, those are the, the traditional roles that we play here. Now, does your producer side ever get in the way with his producer side and have disagreements? We Or, ch or differences of opinion, I guess, is the better way to put it. It's, it's a really good question. Um, I pride myself, and I think Mike does too, on the fact that when we have, when we each have ideas, we bring them up to one another, and we hear them out. And if Mike were to bring something up and say, "Hey, let's try, do me a favor, Jeff, let's try this, go here," and he has a little green LED pointer that he points to things on the screen to let me know, "Hey, I'm hearing something here. Can we do this here? Can we use, can we use a, a, a reverse reverb here?" As a, you know, something like that. And I'll say, sure, and I'll make it happen. And we'll both listen to it, and either he or I will say, hmm, I'm not really digging how that's sounding. I don't think that's where we want to go. But we don't shoot 
We don't shoot things down. We listen. We hear each other out. Because you can do that on a separate track and get rid of it if you don't need it, right? Sure, but you can also undo it. I mean, that's the beauty, oh, okay. of, that's the beauty of, of digital recording is you've you got 32 levels of undo mm-hmm. as, a, as a minimum in Pro Tools, and you can, you can increase it from there if you want it to. Does it work with relationships? <laughs> no, I I don't think so, uh, and and yeah, I don't even want to go into that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and there are times where where I would suggest something, and we'll play it back, and Mike and I will kind of look at each other, and I'll go, and he'll you know I'm shaking my head, and he'll and he'll say yeah I'm not really hearing that either, and he goes but you know good good, it was a good thing to bring up just to see, and um, we also have this this understanding that um, if we are in a recording session and the client is there and we have a disagreement about something or we think something's not happening the way it should, we will never, ever discuss our disagreements in front of the client. We'll say, hey, let's take five and um, we'll come back in five minutes and go off the clock. Mike and I will step outside and we'll talk. Mm-hmm. And and that's the, that's the kind of a, of a working relationship that we have. To complete total respect for one another's opinions. And I think that's what you have to have in that kind of a relationship. There are too many times where engineers and producers, you know, they get into this headbutting thing and you never want to do that in front of the client ever. It's just bad business to do that. Paul McCartney and Phil Spector. Did they? Paul McCartney did not like what Phil Spector did to Let It Be. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, Phil, Phil Spector could be kind of difficult. That's and what I, I've read. Yeah. Yes. He, he was a genius, but he was also, he was out there a little bit, yeah. you know. Almost dangerous in some, from what I've read about some people. But to get off of that, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned reverse reverb. Reverse reverb. Yeah. What the heck is reverse reverb? That's a tough thing to say quickly. Re- yeah, reversed reverb. Yeah. Well, what it is is you picture reverb and how reverb works, okay? You have a direct sound, and then when you apply reverb, it's an algorithm that allows um, that allows the the input signal to be fed through and 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 become and, and sound like it's in a church, for instance. Let's use a church, okay? Um, it, 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 it uses an empirical formula that... Uh, that calculates the way that sound would be in a specific church, okay? That's convolution reverb, actually. But um, if you took, and, and the reverb itself has a starting point and it has a tail. So if you flip that around and you get the tail up front, and you, you know what I'm saying? So, so it's you, like you a Doppler start, effect, in a way. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it would be considered Doppler effect, but you flip you flip the tail around so the tail is at the front, and the direct sound is at the is at the back. Now it it, it sounds almost like it's coming to a gate, okay? Mm-hmm. And it goes, and then it stops. That's what reverse okay. reverb can do. Now that you have described that, and I don't remember the Beatles song, but it was used in one of the Beatles songs because I can picture it in my, my right. head. Right. Right. And it, it became, uh, there was actually something called, I think it was called reversed, it was either reversed gated reverb or just plain gated reverb. And Phil Collins actually came across it by accident in a recording session that he was doing uh, with Genesis many, you know, many, many years ago. And now it's a, it's a post-production technique that's used all the time. You remember how, how his drums sound? Yeah. 
it, it's got that yeah. it's got the tail first and then it comes to closure very quickly that's that's a reversed reverb that's what that is okay yeah and i'm i'm picturing in my mind some of the songs i've heard where now i understand that probably what they were using was reversed reverb right now the one thing as a listener of live music and I don't get, unfortunately, to hear other people do live music as often as I would like, especially now because it's very difficult to find it, but is so many of the solo performers, more the, the singer-songwriters, not necessarily original music, but people who, who sit in front of a, a microphone with a, a guitar, just one person, have a tendency to use way too much reverb. Is that correct? <laughs> you mean for live performances? Yes. Um, by the way, that's true of, of amateur recordings Is as it? well. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, yeah, the, the tendency for the, the tendency is to, to use too much reverb, and it takes discipline to pull back the return on that reverb and, and not use so much. You want to use it to taste. Now, there are times where you want to really be swimming in reverb, okay? Mm -hmm. It depends on the effect that you're going for. But for the most part, especially when you're doing a live performance, you don't want, you don't want to have so much reverb that you start to lose uh, the identity of the direct sound, okay? Like if, you are, if you're speaking, if, if you were speaking, for instance, okay, and there's so much reverb in the signal or coming back in the mix that you can't even detect what the person's saying anymore, mm -hmm. and that's overkill. Yeah, that would be like the 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 equivalent of sitting in a large church um, that's completely reflective. There's nothing in there absorbing any sound, and as soon as you talk, you're lo oops, I'm sorry, you're losing what the person is saying. You're losing what the speaker is saying. Well, when you do that with music, it's really overwhelming, and it's 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 too much. It's mm -hmm. just too much reverb coming back through the return faders into the mix um, or even out of the send out of the reverb send off the track off the vocal track um, that's in a live setting so yes you want to use it to taste you want to put a little in there to provide some ambiance but beyond that it's best to just you know back off of it a little bit and, l and let people hear when for instance when you're doing a podcast there's no way you want to put Correct. A ton of reverb in a podcast. You want it to be what's called dry, mm -hmm. as dry as possible, which is what we're doing here. We happen to be sitting in an area in the studio here that is deliberately set up to be dry. We're mm -hmm. dead, okay? Uh, all kinds of foam sitting around us, and this is actually where I put the vocal booth, by the way. But when you're, when you're putting out a mix in, um, in post-production, you have to be very, very careful not to overdo the reverb. And you can always tell an amateur recording, an amateur mix, by how much reverb the engineer has, or the producer has put into the final mix. If it's swimming, it means that they're, that they're enamored by reverb. And, yeah. and that's the tendency, is when a person hears voices and, and whatnot with, with reverb in there, it's like that, ooh, I love that. But you have to discipline yourself with it. Well, it, to an extent, it can hide imperfections, can it not? Yes. Yes. Which is probably one of the reasons many folks use it. <laughs> yes, it probably is. They don't think of it that way. Well, it doesn't really, it masks them. It doesn't completely hide them. They're there, but the ear becomes so taken with, with what it's hearing. It, it, it becomes so taken with 
the reverb, the effect of what's going on with the vocal, that it it that it kind of neglects the bad parts of the of yeah. the vocal. Sort of like chorus on a guitar, where the guitar is slightly out of tune. The mm -hmm. chorus can somewhat mask the fact that it's because it's swirling. It's swirling. That's right. It's yeah. a phasey kind of a thing. I mean, that's what that's what chorus is. Chorus is is dealing with you know slight detunings mm -hmm. of 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 an input signal, and it changes it. And that's that's where you get that shimmering effect with chorusing. Chorusing and chorus reverb on a guitar is, is a beautiful thing. It really is. Um, too much can can be too much. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, you can take that too far. So, you know, you have to use it to taste. And as an engineer, you learn very quickly what works and what doesn't, and, and how far you can take something. And I think you're the one who told me years ago that it's a cardinal sin to do your actual recording using reverb. You add the reverb later. Yes, exactly. But you um, can't take it out if you've recorded with it, right? Exactly. There is when you record. We might as well talk a little bit about this. There are two sides to a recording system. There's the channel path, and then there's the monitor path. And the channel path is <clears throat> what is actually getting put on tape. When you're using re reverb or delay um, on a vocal, for instance, in recording, that reverb or that delay is generally put into the monitor path so that the person recording hears their, their voice with reverb or delay, what but it doesn't would, get printed. What we would call wet, right? What we would call wet, mm -hmm. but it is not printed wet. It's printed dry, because what you want to do in production, post-production, is you want to be able to apply the reverb of choice. You mm -hmm. want to be able to sit there and listen to different reverbs later on and say, this is what I want to use. And I'm glad I didn't print that other reverb, you know, when we recorded it. So no, you never, you generally don't. It's a bad idea to print reverb. Uh, to tape when you're recording. You must have a standard answer for people who record for the first time who hear the monitor mix wet. <laughs> and then you bring them into the, the booth mm -hmm. and you play it back dry when they go, oh my God, <laughs> when do they I don't sound get, like that? When they don't hear the yes, reverb in yeah. there. Um, if, if I even do that. I mean, most of the time when I play it back, I'm playing it back wet. Okay. Um, in fact, the only time, the only time that, that, that I hear it dry as if I'm doing the editing. Okay. Most of the time I like to pull back some of that reverb when I'm doing editing just to make sure that I'm getting exactly what I want, yeah. you know, with breaths and things like that. Um, there's a lot that goes into cleaning up a vocal um, and then pitch correcting it to get it, getting it ready for post-production. The, what has struck me, because I try to do, when I do live sound, I try to get the best possible sound, whether I'm performing myself or whether I'm running sound for other people, open mics, showcases, things like that. When I watch YouTubes of performers where they're speaking, and these could be concerts, or they could be, let's just use concert. They're speaking, it's dry. Sounds good, but it's dry. And they say, and let's start the song and they start to sing, all of a sudden it just sounds glorious because they've kicked in. They must have a button that, you know, brings in all the effects. Mm -hmm. What I've noticed is the mixers that I have available to me in my price range, and I use Bose equipment, the effects, the, the reverb, the delays, and whatever for the vocal track never sound as good as what I hear on these concerts, but they're working with 
equipment like you'd use. Probably totally different quality, I would imagine. Well, the boards that they're using for live sound are different than the board, for instance, that I use. Mm -hmm. um, the live sound boards are different, but what, what you, let me go back to your first, uh, sure. the first statement. You talked about how when they're setting up, you know, everything sounds dry and it sounds, wow, that's very underproduced. And then all of a sudden, as they're actually singing, you start to hear the effects come in. That's nothing more than, than unmuting, for instance, um, a return track. Um, so with reverb and delay, these are time-based effects and they have sends and returns. Um, so, so if you have a track that has a, uh, that, that is a vocal track, um, you have a separate send fader, what we call a short throw fader, um, that will send a portion of that, of that channel, of that channel, uh, you know, for that track for the vocal into a reverb generator, a reverb device, mm -hmm. okay, whatever that might be, whether it's a lexicon or whatever it is. And then on the, on the other side of that reverb device, it has an output that feeds the input back into the board or into the mix, and that's called a return. That's a return channel path. And all you have to do is mute that channel path to keep that reverb effect from coming back into the mix. And that's probably what they're doing is they're just unmuting mm -hmm. all of those returns all of a sudden, and all of a sudden you, the mix is filled with, with all the effect. For the average singer, do you have a favorite type of reverb? You mean when we're mixing and when, or when we're recording to feed to them um, no, in the monitor path? No, in actual mixing. In mixing, um, I, t I tend to gravitate, and, and, it's, and I don't want to be looked at as, well, you know, I, I just use one particular one. It, it depends really on what the producer's hearing, what the producer wants. Um, I tend to like large plates. I like the plated reverbs um, as opposed to like a spring reverb, which was a, which is what a lot of your um, guitar amps had the old spring oh, we used to love there. hitting them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it makes that noise. Um, so I tend to like the, 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 the plate reverbs a lot. Um, now, what would be a description of plate reverb? Is it like your vocal goes out and it hits a plate and comes back at you? Is that yeah, what that is? Yeah, it's kind of... It's hard to describe this, but in the old days, what, what it used to be, it used to be a room that had a series of plates in it, big metal plates. And to all of you out there who, who may understand this a little bit better than I have because you've actually built plate reverbs, um, I apologize. But there are a series of plates, and they're, they're kind of free-hanging, and you have, um, you have a speaker set up in the room that feeds, for instance, feeds a vocal into that room, and then that vocal bounces off of, if you will, these plates, and then there is a microphone that picks up the sound of all of that and feeds it back into the mix. That's a very generalized mm -hmm. look at how a plate reverb... So that's the old plate reverbs, like the ones they used to have or they still have out at Abbey Road in in, um, in London. There are rooms that are dedicated really? to that. Yeah, it's um, actually one of the reverbs that I have now in the studio is an Abbey Road plate reverb. I've got an Abbey Road chamber and an Abbey Road plate reverb, and they actually have a picture of what this thing looks like. It, it, it shows you what it looks like, and there's, there's three different types of plates that you can use and apply. And, uh, and so that's, that's, in a nutshell, that's kind of what a plate reverb is. It's... It's sending a signal into a room where there's a plate and then capturing the sound that that direct signal that's fed into that room is making against that plate. 
Well, I was reading an article, and I don't remember who the artist is, and the question came up about using reverb, and his comment was, well, my preferred reverb's plate. It's it's a preferred reverb. A is lot it? of people gravitate. A lot of engineers will gravitate towards plate. It's an it's an easy, um, it's an easy reverb to deal with. Um, I tend I like plate reverbs, but I will also I will not steer away from a convolution reverb. Um, convolution convolution reverbs are reverbs that are based a little bit more on actual spaces. Um, for like, instance, like small hall, medium hall, large hall. Yes, but I mean they're actual specific places. So what they'll do is they'll go into like a church, a specific church, and they'll take measurements. And then based on those measurements, they'll use empirical formulas to determine the algorithm hmm. that sets up the actual reverb for that room. And it's not just a single. It's not just a single number. I mean, it is or or a single place. They they will identify algorithms for different places within that within church. the oh wow right so you might be in the balcony you'll get a different sound than you will be if you're in the in the pews that are up close to the front or you may be off to the left or off to the right and they come up with these and they they put this in a convolution reverb and then when you actually pull up and insert a convolution reverb you can choose which sound you want to use from that specific church depending on where you think you want to be positioned. It's really interesting. It's a different kind of a reverb. Now, um, does that make it difficult for you? I guess they're called plugins, aren't they? Isn't that they're plugins, you, yes. Does that make it difficult for you or for anyone as an engineer? There must be hundreds of plugins out there by different companies. There are. Lots of third-party plugins. So um, how do you go about choosing something like that? You mean... You mean in purchasing it or, yes. or uh, in other words, how do you like you're setting up your studio, mm -hmm. your, your recording studio and you go, well, I need reverbs mm -hmm. and you go out wherever you go, Sweetwater or you go to the local, whatever. And they say, well, th this is what we have. We have 189 of them. Which one would you like? How well, does the engineer go about choosing what he or she wants? Well, it's it, you do a lot of investigation, a lot of research. Um, I'm one of those people who I don't purchase something. I don't purchase a plug-in just for the sake of purchasing and say, ooh, i got to have that. I'll look into it. First, I'll determine if I have a need, okay? And if I have a need for something, then I'll go looking. And then in, in the course of looking, I'll research the different reverbs. I'll listen to them. I'll listen to actual recordings that were made with them. I'll read what um, what other professional engineers are saying about them, whether they like them or not, you know, the pros and the cons. And then I'll make the decision to purchase. And, and then, of course, I'll look for a good price um, mm -hmm. because they can. there are reverbs and bundles of reverbs that can be extremely expensive. Um, I really like Waves pl plugins. I like the um, the UA pl Universal Audio plugins. Um but there are a whole host of plug-in companies out there. And I'll make the determination uh, as to whether or not I want to get something. And that's not to say that after I've purchased a plug-in, like a reverb plug-in, that I say, eh, it's not really adding up to what I thought it was, and I'm not going to use it that much. That does happen. It does happen. But every once in a while, I'll pull it out and I'll say, you know what, I think I can use that here. Um, the Abbey Road plug-ins are, are phenomenal plug-ins because they are... They are empirically designed 
just like the Abbey Road reverbs, just like the ones that they have at Abbey Road. Um, I tend to like those. I, I also like the Lexicon reverbs. I really like Lexicon. Well, Lexicon's, <laughs> Lexicon's been around a long time. Um, they've got some amazing, amazing reverbs. Um, I use, uh, there's another one I'm really liking now. It's called the H, um, the, the hybrid. It's a hybrid reverb or an H verb. I think it's called an H verb, an H reverb from Waves. And been using that in, in, in recent projects as well. So what, if someone came to you and said, <clears throat> all right, Jeff, we have to do some cutting here, budget-wise. Okay. We have to take all your plugins, all your preamps, everything out of the studio, <laughs> but you're allowed three. <laughs> what would be the three things that you would keep that would allow you to move forward? If, if I could only keep three of, of everything or three... Let, let's say three plugins. Three plugins. And then we'll go to preamps or something like that. Well, I'd probably, well, you got to have a reverb. Okay, so I, I would pick a reverb, but I'd probably pick the lexicon because that's a good all around reverb. And, and with that lexicon uh, reverb, I could pretty much capture most, probably 90, 95% of what I would really need to do on any project. I'd keep a delay. Um, delay is important. Um, and I'd probably keep uh, a pitch correction tool as well. I think with those three things, I could probably do, I could probably do a lot of damage. But it's it's not preferred. I mean, there are <laughs> there are a lot of things I'd like to keep. <laughs> well, no, the only reason is when someone decides to become a recording engineer, you start with within your budget. Oh, before you say that, let me just make sure. sure. Did you mean in, including EQ and and dynamics as as far as plugins, or were we just talking about specialized things like well, reverb? I'm, and because I, you got to have reverb. You, I mean, you have to have EQ, yeah. and you have to have the ability to use dynamics like compression and stuff. So I can't I can't live without those. You yeah. have to have those. So now, we're, thinking, now we have four. Yeah. <laughs> see, so this, it's an impossible question. I probably, I'd probably would just shut the studio down and right. say I'm done. <laughs> and we haven't even mentioned Pro Tools yet. Right. <laughs> but a lot of those things are in Pro Tools, are they not? Like a plugin, don't you upload it into the system, or is it a physical piece of equipment that you plug into? There's there there are outboard there are outboard uh, devices okay outboard effects which I have several of those because on your studio your studio you mm -hmm. sit there looking at the screen but you have a whole rack of things to the left right and what you're seeing there to the left um, are preamps um, you're seeing some reverbs um, compressors and so forth and then there's all the monitoring stuff you know like um, headphones the headphone amp headphone distribution system the speaker distribution system talk back all of that kind of stuff um, and then there's the um, the Apollo which is the actual interface and that's how you get that's how you get inputs into the studio and then sent into Pro Tools um, so and that's where the the D, uh, you know the the um, DA and AD converters are in that um, so you go from digital, you know, from analog to digital, digital back to analog as you come out through the speakers. So all of that stuff is is in the racks. But then most of the, the plugins are what I would use when I'm actually mixing. Um, there's a reason for that. I try to use 
as few plugins as possible when I'm actually tracking because during tracking, I want the computer's processors to be focusing on just recording a nice, clean, dry, good signal. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and then I can deal with what the plugins are doing in post-production because plugins take a lot of, of uh, computer power. It, they're, they're, some of them are pretty high in DSP. I mean, they, they, they really do um, put a lot of delay on the system. So some people would refer to that as latency, I guess? Exactly. It's latency. Right. And so you have to be careful about that when you're recording. Um, there are ways to compensate for it, <clears throat> but I would rather not put all of that on the computer's processor, even though it can handle it. I would rather not do that to the computer while it's tracking the, you know, the raw tracks. My, my, um, my goal in a recording session is to get the best possible tracks to the hard drive and then work from there. What are the two most important microphones in your studio? The two most important microphones? That's a tough one. Um, I use, uh, well, I, I, the condenser mics are, you know, large, the large cap condenser mics are the ones I use for vocals. Um, and you can either have, uh, you can either have a, um, like a FET, a, a, a FET condenser microphone, or you can have a tube based microphone, which actually has a vacuum tube as opposed to a, um, uh, a field effects trans, uh, transformer. Um, and it depends on what you're going for, but those, those two microphones are very important to me. Then there's the small cap condensers. Uh, which are used a lot for, for instance, recording acoustic guitar, um, things of that nature. Um, so those, those are very important, but then you can't rule out the dynamic microphones like, for instance, what we're using right now. Um, these, are, these are Beta 58s. Um, I use, for instance, uh, Beta 57s on snare, top and bottom on snare when I'm recording drums. Um, kick drum, you know, like a, a Beta 52, Beta 52A, those are all, that's a dynamic mic. Dynamic mics are really good for, for, for drums, okay? Unless you're trying to capture high-end detail. Like, for instance, your drum overheads. Uh, drum overhead mics that you put over top of the drums to capture the entire drum kit. Um, I will typically use, like, uh, Shure SM81s, which are, which are condenser mics. They're small cap condenser mics captures that high level of detail where dynamics are not so much about that condenser mics help to capture more of that high-end detail but they also have that nice low end mm -hmm. that you can get from them dynamic mics are dy dynamic mics are, are a little bit better at, at capturing percussives and things you know things of that nature like I would never I would never put um, a high-end condenser in front of a kick drum <laughs> I just would never do something like that well you'd ruin the mic wouldn't you 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 potentially could yeah. um, but it's I'm, I'm sure it's been done it's not something I choose to do with my microphones but I have no problem putting an re20 um, an EVRE 20 in front of a kick drum or a, a beta 52a or, or you know but those are like dynamic that. mics those right? are dynamic mics yeah, yeah. And you know what they say about the SM57s, the SM57 mic, you can, you can use it in a recording studio, use it for a recording studio, and, and at the end of it, you can use it to hammer in a nail <laughs> and hang a picture at the end of it. I mean, they're, they're workhorses. That's just the way they are. I have seen at the Weinberg doing the John Denver, you know, the Boulder Canyon Band, and 
we were doing a sound check, and this is, gosh, maybe seven, eight years ago. It might have been the second time I, I emceed that for them. And I walked up because they wanted a sound check for my little shtick that I do. And I walked Which up. Which I love. I always oh, love those. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I have fun doing them. Nerve wracking, but they're fun. And I walked up, and there was no windscreen on the mic. It's just because it's indoors. You're not going to have a lot of wind noise. And I walked up, and it's a SM58. And I looked at it, and I'm thinking, gosh, there's not a curve on that screen anywhere. It's all flat indentations and everything from being beaten up, and uh-huh. yet it sounded fantastic. That's the Shure SM58. That's the same thing with the with the SM57. They're, they're tough microphones. Uh, there's not much you can do to them to hurt them. And, uh, well, and they have that wonderful low proximity effect when you get in close yep that's that's proximity effect yep. and that happens with uh with cardioid pattern mics yep and um cardioid pattern and also with uh to a certain extent um figure eight patterns as well but not you don't get that really with um omnidirectional but that's what's nice about that you, that that's the broadcaster sound yeah it is it is that <laughs> wonderful yep <laughs> I, I remember the first time i met it radio disc jockey in mm-hmm. person who I had listened to for months and months or years, who had this wonderful big voice like this. And I met him, and he had a normal voice like anybody else. And I'm thinking, that's not the same guy. <laughs> not knowing at that point, because I think I was in my teens or my early 20s, that it's processing. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's proximity. It's, 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 it's both of those things combined, because, of course, you can EQ the heck out of the bottom end of it and get what you want, but the closer you get in on a cardioid mic, yep. the more you get that, pro, that proximity effect. Yeah. So let's get back to mm-hmm. Torchlight Productions Recording Studio. What should someone think about before they come here? To record? Yeah. Um, well, they should have a game plan. Um, I always like to meet with people before they come in for the actual session so that we have a session plan. We know what we're going to be doing. We know what we're going to re- be recording. Um, I have an idea of the way that they sound and what they're looking for. Are they looking for a demo, uh, something that is used just to, you know, to get venues interested in them to do live, you know, live performances, or are they looking to put out an EP or a full-fledged album? Okay, that kind of gives me an idea as to the level of service that we need to provide here. Now, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and based on that, then we put together the plan, and when they come in, we're all set up. And I always tell them, make sure you, you do not come in here and think that this is a practice session. When you come in, you need to hit the ground running because the clock is running, and, you know, this is not, you don't want to be paying for practice. So make sure that you work out all of your details before you get into the studio. The Do you have a preferred style of performer that you would like to record? A preferred style of performer. Um, like, like, do you, because you're a singer-songwriter yourself, yourself do you, is that your favorite type of recording or group ensembles, rock and roll? Is there a preferred, and I'm not saying you can't because you can do any of those things, but do you have a favorite? I love working with singer-songwriters. Yeah. I, uh, because I'm a guitar player, I love to record acoustic guitar. Um, it's just, it, it's an instrument I'm familiar with, and I, 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 I really love setting up for it. Um, 
and but that's not to say that I don't enjoy recording drums. I love to record drums. Drums take a little more to set up, and getting a really good drum sound is something that um, that that I take pride in when it happens. <laughs> well, and you have a, a, a good friend and client named Bill, mm-hmm. who is a, I don't even know if I'd call him a drummer or a per- percussionist because he is all of those and more. All and more. On one of your Facebook posts or whatever, he's playing empty plastic water bottles on the high <laughs> on top the bar. bar. On the bar, yeah. Now, what was he doing that for? It was a specific sound that he was going for. Um, I think he was, we were on break and he just happened to be tapping with a pencil or I actually he was tapping with his drumsticks on the bottle and he liked the way it sounded. And Bill's the kind of a guy who he likes, he's in a very, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, he's, a, he, he, he's out, he, he's way, way out of the box when it comes to how creative he is. Um, with regard to the, the to, to the music that he makes, um, if he hears something that he likes, he'll he'll just say to me, Jeff, can we capture this? Can we do something? Yeah, we'll capture it. I there was a recording session I had with him. Since we're talking about him, I'll very briefly tell you where he wanted to capture the sound of guitars and cellos and so forth um, laying on their backs on chairs, and him just hitting the strings with mallets with rubber mallets and he goes would you let me do that with your guitars I said yeah as long as you're not hitting the wood he said what do you think that's going to sound like he goes I said I don't know let's try it so we set up and we had it all set up right over there and it was beautiful it was absolutely beautiful how did he use that in a song that he was that he wrote yeah I can't remember the name was many many years ago but it it worked out it was beautiful and he sat in the center and he just kind of swiveled on a on a drum stool and moved around and played these different things and i had every different guitar mic'd in, in such a way that it 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 sounded like an entire orchestra of 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 i can't even describe it i'm not even sure how i would describe hitting guitar strings percussively with mallets cuz i i'm not sure anybody's ever done that before but see that's the kind of guy that bill is bill Bill had me record things that I never in a million years would have thought to record. I guess he takes the thought of, I wonder. To he, the nth degree. Yeah, brings it into reality. He does. Yeah. He, he does. He makes it a reality, and, and he says, can we do this? Yeah, let's, let's do it. I've never turned him down anything. I've never told him that, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I had to think first about letting him tap my guitars you know you take a martin d76 and you put mallets on it really Mm. i promise you i'm not going to hurt it and he did and i watched how he did it sure you know he actually went and got a cello he doesn't play cello but he rented one and brought it in for the session so that he could tap on the strings that's commitment that's that's commitment to to sound that's commitment to what you're doing and that's that's bill well we're starting to run out of time so if someone is thinking of recording Mm Um, whatever the project, whether it's just one song um, or an EP, which stands for extended play, right? Mm-hmm. The I've never understood that you've got an EP that stands for extended play and CD, which is compact disc, and the <laughs> compact disc has more stuff on it than the extended play does. Right. It's just Extended plays are usually, you know, 
five, six songs, something right. like that. It's it's not intended to be a full-blown album. And Almost like teasers in a way. Yeah, and I'm not sure why, where that terminology came about. I just know that that's what's intended by it. Sure. Um, it, it comes from way back, you know, probably before I was ever doing any of this. Well, what's wonderful now is we can now correctly state that we're creating an album mm-hmm. because they've, they've gone back to vinyl, many people. They have. Know, instead That's of right. CDs. So. That's right. So how would someone contact you if they have an idea that they want to bring into the recording studio? What's the best way? Oh, they can, they can, um, let's see, well, we have, you know, most of it has been, been, um, Word of mouth, of mm-hmm. course. That's I have to say that that's most of our business comes that way. Referral is a wonderful yeah. thing. We do have a website, um, although I don't know if very many people have actually contacted us through the website. Um, and and then there, it's mostly it's just people hearing about us from other artists who've been here, and then they give them our phone number or they email us and contact us and say, hey, we're interested in coming in and seeing the studio, or we'd like to do this, what is, what's entailed, and, and, and so forth. Well, we, we are, for people, we're recording this mid-August 2020. We're still in the pandemic um, situation. We're in phase two in the state of Maryland. Hopefully we'll get to f- phase, phase three. three. Yeah. Or we might go back to phase one. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, everything's looking pretty good at the moment, although other states are having difficulty where they're having to pull things back in. Right. But are you actively recording now? We are. We're doing it very carefully. Um, we've we've kind of made the commitment to not have more than two people come into the studio at a given time. Um, and we're, we're pretty strict about that. Um you know, Mike and I are not so concerned about all of this. I mean, we're concerned, but we're not we're not going nuts over it. Sure. But we want to make sure that the clients who come in are comfortable. And if they want us, if if they if they feel comfortable wearing masks all the time, except when they're recording, because sure. we will not allow that. If you're in the booth and you're recording a vocal, that mask is coming off. You're but not going to get a good sound. We're not going to get otherwise. what we need. No, we're yeah. not going to get what we need. But we're we're very careful. And you know, people have told us that they've been they felt very comfortable and when they've been here. So two people at a time. Um, if it's a whole band, obviously we have an issue with that for sure. right now. Um, but we're happy because of the uh, because of this uh, of what goes into multi-track recording. We can bring in a couple people at a time and lay down drums and and maybe one melodic instrument with the drums. Have someone come in later and do bass. You can bring people in in phases, you know, and and you can wind up with with a full-blown recording. And and not everybody was there to, at the same time. That's multi-track recording, and that's the beauty of that. Now, would you like to give your contact info to the people? Sure. On air? Go ahead if you'd like. Uh, You can contact me, um, Jeff Fight, at uh, Torchlight Productions Recording Studio. My phone number is, uh, it's a cell phone, and it's 301-801-6868. That's the best way to get a hold of me. You can either call me or text me, um, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Okay. Now, we're going to be ending the show. First of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to come down and get into the studio. As you know, I think it's been two years since I was here to record anything. <laughs> Looking and, forward to getting you back in again. You know, it's one of those things. I encourage other people to book studio time, and I have a love-hate relationship with the studio. I absolutely love it, but it scares me to death because of the pre- preciseness of it. And I'm somewhat of a perfectionist, so I'm never happy with the result. It takes me many, many listens 
to something I've recorded before I warm up to it. And, but also I just, I don't think of it when the time is right to actually book it. And so I will come back because I've always enjoyed coming here. Oh, thank you. The, uh, mm. I, I will. I but, enjoy working with you here. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for, again for having us to the uh, Torchlight Productions Recording Studio with the two dogs <laughs> and slumbering been, they, at the moment. Yep. And they've been quiet the whole time. They have. They've been absolutely wonderful. Yeah, they're good dogs. They, uh, they, they're here in almost every recording session. Now, we had mentioned Mike Conway, who's your in, in-house producer. Mm-hmm. And we're going to end the show with a song from his EP. And I'm drawing a complete blank as to what the title of the EP is. I meant to remember that. I, I mean, only... the EP or the song? I'm not sure. The, the EP. I think he's got five or six songs on the EP. And this yes. is the third one down. This is Broken, Broken Bridges. Bridges. Broken Bridges. Mm-hmm. So, folks, we're going to listen to uh, Mike Conway. And uh, thanks again to Jeff Fight for allowing us to come into the studio. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Let's listen to Mike. Thanks, Todd. Wispy Bump Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker, based out of Frederick, Maryland, either in the Wispy Mop Music Studio or on location, like today, at Torchlight Productions Recording Studio in Bealsville, Maryland, with Jeff Fight, Chief Engineer. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can go to wispymopmusic.podbean.com or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll let's finish off the song. Where they've gone And I must say I listen to her 
Bye. 